from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. One of the most popular episodes of Psychoactive to date has been the one where I invited my friend Julie Holland to serve as my co-host and answer questions with me from you, the audience. So we're going to record another one of those episodes, and we need your questions. Leave us a voicemail with a question, as detailed as possible, at 1-833-779-2460, or you can record a voice memo and send it to psychoactive at protozoa.com. I'm sure it's going to be a great second go at this. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. Today's episode is the first time I'm actually inviting a previous guest right back on to do a second conversation. And it's Philippe Bourgois. And the reason I'm doing this is because when we talked last time, we really focused extensively on his research first in East Harlem in the 90s and then more recently in Philadelphia, which focused especially on people involved in selling crack and sometimes other drugs. And we got so caught up in that discussion that all his other work, 
um, a whole other part of his work, which focuses on injecting drug users and others in San Francisco, Los Angeles, even in Tijuana. We barely touched on that. And there are some similarities between the conversation we had there, but a whole range of new themes to address. And so, you know, I wanted to have uh, Philippe back for a second time so we could delve more deeply into this other line of work. So, Philippe, thank you ever so much for coming back on Psychoactive with me. And thank you for for bringing me back. I think a, a shorter way of introducing me is just probably to say I'm an obsessive compulsive researcher on drugs since the mid 1980s. But thank you. I should then thank you for being an obsessive compulsive and applying your obsessive compulsive energies to this area. Okay. Because I, I tell you what I what I had done before we talked last time, and I refreshed myself this time was taking out this book, Righteous Dope Fiend which you co-authored with a graduate student of yours, Jeff Schoenberg. And it's not just a written book. It's actually a, a, a photo uh, ethnography that it's full of these stunning and incredible, you know, black and white photos. And it was based upon the research that you did for, I think, 12 years from 1994 to 2006, basically living with uh, essentially homeless drug injectors, mostly heroin injectors in San Francisco. My first question for you is when you look at that community that you got to know back then. And obviously there were certain things that were distinctive about them when they were born, the time they grew up, etc. But do you think that many of the observations you made and the generalizations you came away with and the, the insights would be generally true of a range of drug using communities today around the United States? You know, frankly, the age old French saying, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, is the tragedy of of drug use at the current moment. Uh, it's actually gotten worse because of how the prohibitionist policies have pushed drugs into greater toxicity, namely fentanyl, and now even worse than fentanyl, the combining of animal tranquilizers, xylazine, to the fentanyl to remediate some of the disadvantages of fentanyl, but keep their psycho, you know, what injectors see as the psychoactive um, advantages of fentanyl over, over heroin. So that over, you know, poppy plant-based heroin. So that is the, the current situation that's hitting the streets now across different parts of the United States at different rates, with, of all places, Philadelphia being the epicenter of all of this, is the addition of xylazine to fentanyl. So it's the two most toxic products that, when mixed together, create a whole slew of bodily problems. Basically, xylazine, to put it in popular terms, asphyxiates you know, cells randomly. Um, so it isn't the abscesses that pop up that are so horrendous are, are not even popping up necessarily at the site where someone injects. Xylazine is also a different kind of sedative it's not meant for human consumption. Xylazine is meant, you know, to put elephants to sleep, you know, when you transport them. And the reason why it came first to Philadelphia is because the horse breeders who, you know, often win the sort of biggest you know, U.S. horse races, raise their thoroughbreds in the highlands of Puerto Rico because it's cheaper, where it's just a great environment for horses. And the 
stable the people working in the stables they were underpaid partially employed for only part of the season and because these horses are so valuable they obviously knocked them out with xylazine so the xylazine made its way into the drug supply that the that that the stable users had gotten involved in and one of the big poorest migration routes between rural Puerto Rico and the United States is through the poorest neighborhood of Philadelphia which just so happens to be the four state mid-Atlantic headquarters for distributing retail level drugs uh, to the United States. Well, this... well Philippe, Philippe, let me let me interrupt you for sure. one second because I just want to get a handle on this. So, you know, we know going back a number of years ago when we begin to see the emergence of fentanyl, there's all sorts of obvious reasons why fentanyl starts to become more omnipresent first in certain neighborhoods and then increasingly you know, around the country, and that's because it's you know it's it's cheaper and easier to smuggle. It's about fifty hundred times more potent than heroin. You can, you know, just put it in the mail and effectively send tens or hundreds of thousands of doses. Uh, it was a way of cutting heroin. So basically, dealers could say, you know, make more money on their sales. And my recollection from talking to people in the harm reduction world and elsewhere was that initially people preferred the heroin. But over a period of time, you know, you now have a whole new generation that actually prefers the fentanyl. And in fact, fentanyl has become kind of omnipresent and it's a powerful opioid. So it kind of makes sense that it would have gotten out there in the way it did with all the deadly, deadly consequences. But when you're talking about xylazine, what was the incentive, A, on the part of the suppliers and the dealers to put it in there? Was it similar to fentanyl? And B, is there in fact a real demand? I mean, are there people on the street who are saying, I want that combination and why? Yeah, no, and it's a simple it's a simple answer. Longer legs to the high. The problem with fentanyl is that precisely what makes it more psychoactively fun to people is that it doesn't last as long. Its half-life is shorter. So you get that more manic up and down, which is where people who like who who adore that pleasure get their pleasure. What the addition of xylazine does, it it gives it what they call on the street longer legs. So fentanyl has short legs compared to poppy plant-based heroin. The other caveat um Ethan, is that drug users are like wine aficionados. They develop these tastes and there's groups of them that like one thing, groups of them that like another, but they they really sort of know too much about what they're talking about. And so it's, you know, like any high art, it's this sort of, to use populist psychobabble language, you know, obsessive compulsive, you know, love for the effects. What someone figured out was, you know, you add, it's called Trank on the streets of Philadelphia. Just the name itself tells you what the drug feels like to some extent, Trank. And when you, you know, when you're doing ethnography there, you, you, you know, you're walking around, you can't quite believe what you're seeing. People are sort of moving around in almost in slow motion, just completely just sedated beyond what you've ever seen with normal you know, with normal fentanyl or normal heroin. So, Philippe, you're saying that, I mean, we're talking here that about a drug combination that the drug consumers are actually seeking out yeah. because they like the sensory psychoactive effect, but that unfortunately has health consequences that are even more devastating for their lives. 
Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's more tragic than that. You know, there's a huge section of them that seek it out, and then the rest of them have it totally imposed on them. So it, it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing. It's easier for the sellers to make more money and bring in new people. It started basically measurably in 2016 in Philadelphia, where the first you know, place where public health sees it is in the coroner's reports. So it's in the in the poor people, you know, in the first overdoses who ha- who occur on a large scale. And this is what's so sad. When you look at the per capita overdoses, you compare Philadelphia, even just to New York City, you know, it's just like way, 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 way more. There's no way to look at it and tell the difference uh, with your, you know, mm-hmm, with the naked mm-hmm. eye. That's the problem with the prohibitionist way we do drug testing and drug monitoring. If we monitored drugs to protect citizens, you know, protect residents, protect human beings in the United States from killing themselves, damaging themselves and damaging others, we would be able to have clear data that's rapidly alerted to people so people understand the risks of what they're doing. People don't realize it. They just think it's fun. You know, think of it. You're you're 17 years old. You know you want to have fun and you're, you, you think that you're immortal and that's the tragedy. You know, when you're walking down the street and and it, it is interesting because because it's so sedating, you know, you'll see people bickering and so forth, but it's not like they're moving fast and, you know, and able to punch each other or, you know, get angry at each other the way you can when you're taking a stimulant. I can hear how excited you are about the current work, but I do really want to pull you back just a little bit yes. to to some of the earlier work you did and, and the book Righteous Dope Fiend, yeah. because I've just immersed myself in it. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, you spent thousands and thousands of hours with people living under the freeway in, in, in back areas. I mean, essentially, you know, either 100 percent homeless or mostly homeless people who were totally committed to heroin. At one point, there was a phrase you used. You said that you began to understand this community as forming a community of addicted bodies that is held together by a moral economy of sharing. Just explain what you mean by that and whether that still applies today, which I assume it does. It does. And actually, I, I want to also you know shout out to Jeff Schonberg. For every five hours I spent out there, he spent 50, <laughs> literally. That's how and why he got such good pictures. I mean, he's a talented photographer just in and of, he just has that knack. But then when you become, you know, su- such a skilled ethnographer and so dedicated at it, he was working at it full time and didn't have any other responsibilities. He was able to real and, 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 and he's also a gentle, nice person. Uh, people appreciated him and they invited him in and he was giving people, you know, copies of the photographs he was taking of them and they really appreciated it. They started decorating their encampments with Jeff's photographs. And so that made this, what we call photo ethnography possible. Um, and it tempers, you know, the intense, you know, academic analysis that's also in the book, because I wanted to set it in the context of deindustrialization. 
what comes through in the book is it goes a lot deeper there. I mean, you and especially Jeff, I guess, I mean, you are sometimes spending the night yeah. in these homeless encampments. You know, you're sharing food, you're sharing money, you're getting to know their families. Um, and, you know, unlike, say, some of the crack sellers in Philly or Harlem, you know, you're also living with people who are sometimes haven't bathed in weeks, who are in horrific, you know, health, uh, who can smell terribly, who are shitting themselves and puking. I mean, you describe a lot of this kind of being around. Did it take some getting used to, to just be part of that community? Yeah. At first you feel like a kook and you're embarrassed. I was, yeah, I was chair of a medical school department at the time at UCSF. I would park my car on the corner where they hang out and I'd still be dressed in, you know, what you have to dress as a chair. And I would, you know, whatever, uh, you know, go outside dressed like that and then see, you know, everyone walking by would think that I was the upper class addict going to get their fix. That was what actually I was most embarrassed about initially. I was just embarrassed that everyone thought that I was, you know, uh, you know, whatever, a drug addict. After a while, I just didn't care. And I didn't even notice the passersby just the way they don't in some sense. And the passersby didn't seem to notice me anymore. I don't, I don't quite know how that magic takes place. It was interesting. I remember vividly the first time I brought Jeff down to the scene. I just couldn't believe that he was able to hang out in the scene that we were in without being freaked out by it. He could see both their desire to be documented, their need to tell their story, and and they they want their story to be heard. They're proud of who they are. You know, outlaws in that sense. These were people, at, you know, at the te- at the end of a long life of being in drug use. Right. I think you pointed out that very few of the white, um, you know, the white homeless, the white drug addicts had actually been in juvenile delinquent uh, exactly. institutions as opposed to the black it's ones. It's pretty amazing. But just to go yeah. back, though, Philippe, to that, that phrase you use, a community of addicted bodies that is held together by a moral economy of sharing. Just elaborate on sure. that. Sure. Well, I was funded by the National Institutes of of health to reduce HIV and hepatitis C. I, you know, and I'm a conscientious researcher. I wanted to get practical data on how one could, you know, reduce the transmission of blood-borne diseases through shared needle use. As a result, I looked, you know, much more, more much more closely than is normal on site to sharing practices as they occur. And I would discuss those practices and what people understood about the risks and what they understood when I would tell them the public health perspective on what they were doing and the risks they were taking. So I got tremendous amount of detail on that. And I realized that what public health was defining as, you know, sort of a self-destructive pathological thing, sharing, was seen as an ethical responsibility by them. Because what what they all organize their lives around is not becoming what they call dope sick, not going into the horrible, horrible withdrawal symptoms that are so, you know, that are so devastating to anyone who's physically dependent on heroin. And, you know, it's super visible. It's like it's, you know, the person is sweating, the person is getting irritated, the person is fidgeting. None of their cells are behaving normally anymore. So, you know, the skin cells are itching and getting irritated with rashes and they can no longer hold any food in and so forth. So when someone is like that, 
you you want to help them. I mean, you even if you're a schmuck, you want to help them. You know, I mean, you 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 feel sorry. You can't not feel sorry for them. So as a result, you know, they would you know give them part of their needle, and, and you know, in that process, you know, most likely infect them if the person wasn't already infected with hepatitis C. But the thing that they were getting most of all was abscesses, bloodborne abscesses from the sharing of needles, and also just from the fact they didn't have they didn't have obviously running water. So you just you can't you can't clean your hands, you can't clean your body, you know, effectively or consistently and so forth. It was that very visible dynamic of suffering that was based in an ethics of sharing. And there was no communication of of understanding between their perspective and priorities versus you know, what the outsider perspective, the rational perspective of public health and, and clinicians is. Since I was working in a medical school, I told all the doctors that. I explained it. I said, I, I was trying to teach them how to engage, you know, talk to someone about the priorities of their life, how they can manage less destructively their ve their veins, you know, and what they need to do about, you know, their nutrition with respect to how much they can enjoy drugs. They only want to hear things in terms of how can they maximize, either minimize the pain of their withdrawals, depending at what stage they are in their relationship to the drug. You know, all uh, many of them just thought themselves as staying well. They, they weren't trying to get high anymore. They were just trying to keep withdrawals symptoms at bay whereas others were still in the ecstasy of pursuing I'm 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 having fun every day um, they were also drinking huge amounts of Cisco berry right that's a completely legal toxic <laughs> you know alcohol right Cisco berry you know fortified wine and getting uh, cirrhosis of the liver and smoking huge amounts of of cigarettes and in addition to the crack they were smoking or the crack that they would melt into their heroin so you know they were being bombarded also by you know sort of predatory industry that makes so much money off of killing people simultaneously and it just happens to be called legal we'll be talking more after we hear this ad I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. 
you know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Philippe, you know, I'm just wondering, I mean, NIDA in its, I mean, no longer as much today, but, you know, they were anti-harm reduction. They would tell people seeking grant funding uh, not to use the phrase harm reduction. They were reluctant to get on board on needle exchange, the whole thing. And they've never been all that big on funding ethnography in a big way. You know, it's all brain science and addiction and all this kind of stuff. But somehow you were successful in getting funding that resulted in these fascinating, fascinating books and articles you've written. How did you manage that? Well, you know, this was the pre-extreme right-wing turn in the United States, Ethan. They reached out to me. They reached out to me actually way back under crack because I was like the only, you know, the, the only person at least that the press was interviewing that knew what crack looked like, how it was used. They didn't even know if it was smoked or swallowed or or injected, right? They were that ignorant. There was an awareness that they didn't know what was going on. They didn't even know what the problems were and were being blindsided by everything. So there was a project officer who did believe in needle exchange. Uh, actually, his his name actually, he's retired now, was Richard Needle, ironically. That's uh-huh. his real name, not, not his. This was in the late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he actually realized that I you know, was clueless about the NIH and could never write the right kind of thing. So he just threw a little tid, tiny tidbit of money at me. You know, anthropologists never have any money for their research and said, you know, tell us, you know, tell us what drugs are the drugs of preference and what's going on. We don't know anything. And so he started inviting me into their things. And then I actually realized, my gosh, this is just, you know, it's boring to write these grants, but you can do it. You just got to use their language. But what I wanted to do actually is prove that my qualitative participant observation anthropological methods are really important, quote unquote, scientific methods. They are scientific methods. They tell you about reality. They're actually also very subtle because you have to pay attention to your own biases in order to be able to trust your own observations because it's you that's doing it with your biases. So when you're self-critically self-aware and do it 
with a vision to trying to document reality, knowing that you're distorting reality because of your biases, you can actually do important work documenting reality, or at least try to. They're, they're a health thing. They care about blood-borne diseases. This was the height of the HIV epidemic, the height of, you know, hepatitis C epidemic. And, you know, they still didn't know whether, you know, whether sex was more risky than, you know, injection drug use or which one, you know, how it was being transmitted in terms of its relative risks. And people hadn't, you know, thought of, for some reason, it's, you know, why didn't they think of it? They hadn't thought of looking at how people actually inject. When do they share? How do they share? What do they mean about sharing? Who do they share with when they say they share? And, you know, all they had was quantitative data and interviews that are embarrassing to the person being interviewed. You know, do you use a condom? Well, you want to say, no, I don't use a condom and sound like a creep. No, you say, yeah, I use a condom, you know, oh, every now and then I, you know, it might, you know, I might forget or it might, but whatever, you know, you can actually have those conversations in a real way in a non-stigma way when you make friends with someone. So I wanted to find out useful things on how diseases were being transmitted in a practical way. And also, you know, anthropology doesn't tend often to force itself to try to be humbly useful. I wanted to be humbly useful, useful to the people I was studying so that there would be more information on what could be done to reduce you know, how obviously devastating their use of heroin was on them and the way they were being policed and the way that services were mismanaging them and mistreating them even when it wanted to help them. It's crucial. I mean, I think listeners of Psychoactive will know that one of my pet beefs is the inadequate funding that's come from the National Institute on Drug Abuse for ethnographic research on drug use and drug markets forever and ever. And when we look today at the problems around fentanyl and not knowing much about how and why fentanyl is being used, much less how it's being distributed and how it's getting into the drug supply, I mean, that's just a failure of, of directing funding in the right way, in the right area. And if they were doing it, it might actually be saving tens of thousands of lives. Yeah, with with it with a cheap ethnographic project, you can actually find out what's really going on, as opposed to the self self desirable responses people are giving. Exactly, Philippe. I mean, just you know, reading it though, I mean, it's just an immersion into this world of people living at really maybe in one in some respects the lowest rungs of American society, just seen as basically refuse by by so much of America, right? And and yet you describe you know complicated lives. All of the people living on the street have kids, sometimes many kids, although they're typically not much in touch with them. They still some of them have you know are in touch with their families, so they're going in and out of legal jobs, illegal jobs hustling, begging, selling, you name it, but a lies that also revolve, it seems, around this kind of daily, more, more than daily, practice of sharing heroin, where you know, all, it's everything, you know, where, where people's characters and needs come out about about their about greed, about generosity. I mean, people are getting, you know, dope sick because they don't have their fix. I mean, it, it just you describe this incredibly intimate um, scene of folks kind of, you know, fighting, you know, getting violent with one another and then and yet then backing one another up in these in these situations. And, and you guys are basically living it. You're part of it. Right. Just watching this stuff. I'm just, I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, here you see people periodically trying to get their lives together and then engaging in the most extraordinary acts of self-destruction. 
um, that one can possibly imagine, almost heartbreakingly so. Yeah, you're right. And it was hard to understand as initially as an outsider because you see, you know, total solidarity and then the next minute a total betrayal by the same person to the same person you know to the to the same other person and 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 then all of a sudden you realize that they are operating with a with actually a very you know sort of shared sense of moral ethics amongst among one another that isn't recognized as ethics by outsiders right it's tina what the the one of the main characters was profoundly profoundly religious and she, before eating she would insist on saying grace and then at when 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 we would sleep in the encampment with her she would read a page before she would let people fall asleep she would read a page from the bible and and this same person was you know as she would say stomping on people when they owed her money or when she thought she could steal some money from them so she was a very very tough woman but was operating in in a set of, set of ethics that she was constructing about her life. It sounded like some of them came from families where most of the you know kids in the family had landed up getting messed up or addicted or dying or into drugs and others, they were the only one in the family who had quote unquote gone bad in some respect, right? You say most of them growing up in poverty, um, but you know, some of them, uh, you know, can, maintaining fairly normal, typical lives until they're into their 20s, early 30s, and then spiraling down and out for one reason or another. Some of them having kind of places they can go sleep or periodically having ordinary housing where they can live with family and then coming back to live in these community. And some of them, it seems that even when they have the opportunities, you know, not just a shelter, but even when, you know, there are some progressive housing programs where people have an option, continually being drawn back you know, back to the encampments, that that is to some extent their community and their world where, you know, they find a sort of sustenance. Yeah. And it took us a while to realize this. We realized that on some level, even if they couldn't say it clearly, you know, you know, in, in, in sort of therapeutic language, they realized they had to get the hell out of their families, that they were a destructive force to their children. They were a destructive force to their mother. And so they would dress up, you know, they would arrange to take a shower and dress up and, and go to a family reunion once a year, but then remove themselves and go AWOL, you know, you know, for another year or until Easter, you know, until an East, a family reunion Easter celebration or, or a Christmas celebration or whatever this, whatever the religious holiday would be. That was, you know, very, very, you know, very clear to see. And you had different, you have different family structures also in distinct um, ethnic groups. So the white families would um, hate on their on their wayward children more than the African-American families, which tended to forgive them and allow them back in much more rapidly and seek them out. So when, when a family reunion was being planned, a mother or a cousin or an uncle or a son would come seeking to find their father and would ask us to relay the message. Um, you know, they, they were still loved members of their family in that sense. It was possible for us to to analyze these things and set them in the larger context of, you know, you know, U.S., um, you know, forms of, of both political economy and cultural sets of relationships, family and gender arrangements. I think 
maybe the most fascinating part for me of the book was the ways in which you and Jeff describe the differences between the white folks and the black folks living in this community. And there's always an exception to everyone. You know, there's some, you know, some blacks who are more like the white or whatever. But I mean, you know, it, it seems to cover all areas. I mean, you just mentioned one, I think, about families where, you know, the, the blacks living in the in these in these encampments had, you know, maintained a, a closeness to their families. I mean, not maybe not children, but especially, you know, the broader families than the whites did. But there seem to be other trends as well. I mean, just talk about that. It's how like they had different tastes in drugs, right? I think with crack more common, different ways of injecting. Just say something about that. Well, the chapter where we address that the most we call intimate apartheid because we wanted to try to explain uh, to, to outsiders how what looks at first sight like a multicultural set of a sort of loose array of homeless you know community it was actually super super um separated uh, uh, you know even if only by three yards um by by you know racial antagonism and the exceptions were also dramatic and the people involved in them would always explain them they would explain why they were the exception and their analysis of it then started to make sense you know the other thing is how they interfaced with services so the most obvious thing is how much more hostile the uh, police were to the african americans there was just no comparison right uh, and also most importantly was what passers-by who a passer-by is willing to give a quarter to or a dollar or five dollars or twenty dollar bill the whites could collect a lot more money panhandling so they didn't have to engage in as much illegal activity they didn't have to take risks in some sense and they what they did was they also learned to view themselves as broken down winos so that's what they would project to the public and that's a recognizable person they would also present themselves as vietnam veterans wait wait, wait. this is true both black and white in terms of presenting as Vietnam vets. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's universal. That's a universal American experience. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you do also, I mean, you sort of describe this thing, not just public facing, but like, you know, there's a kind of enterprising black outlaw versus right. yeah. the broken down white bum. And it's not just how they present outwardly. And one's well dressed and one is in, in ragged clothes. Right. That, that's extraordinary to see. It's not ambiguous either. Yeah, I mean, it's almost. I mean, I mean, it's also how they're interacting with one another. You say the whites are going to be more successful at begging than panhandling because basically some of the racism, but that there was also more of a hustling culture in a way, a more entrepreneurial culture maybe going on in terms of black culture. Right, and and they and the whites would get criticized for being lazy. Yeah, those guys are just good for nothing. All they do is beg. You know, I I have self respect. I'm out there hustling. You know, I I have a sense. I, I dress well. I I spend time figuring out where to get clothes, and and I make efforts to wash. You know, in the bathroom of the McDonald's. You know, when the manager isn't looking, and so forth. That was very very clearly articulated by everyone and visible in that sense. Well, you also point out that sort of. 
black street culture is kind of dominant. I mean, not just in this community, right. but really in much of urban America, whereas there really is not much of a sort of white urban street culture anymore. You know, I mean, the whole biker gang Hell's Angels thing didn't really quite work here. And the kind of white street culture that one might have associated with gangs back in the earlier part of the 20th century of Irish and Jewish and Italian and other gangs doesn't really operate either. And so there's a way in which the black culture, street culture, kind of shapes and frames everything, and the whites don't really fit into that very well. Yes, certainly in this scene and in this generation. But on the other side of San Francisco, in the Haight-Ashbury, there was a thriving white young injector scene that was dominated by whites. And it's really interesting. It was really interesting to see how people performed and did real violence. So you, you have whites, Latinos, and blacks, right? The Latinos were literally caught in between and they could choose which camp they wanted to go to. They were in the minority in this scene. And then all of a sudden their whole personality would change in terms of how they did violence, which drugs they were preferring, and how they were talking in each of the two scenes. So That's interesting. Yeah, people were, were able to sort of morph their cultural preferences, so to speak. Well, you know, it was interesting, even when you get into something as intimate injecting. Yeah, that's incredible to see. You said even the ways that the whites and blacks injected were different. Different experience of the injecting, different ways of doing it, and different health consequences. Yeah, booting and jacking. So it's, you know, you put in the you put it in and then pull out so that some of the blood comes back into your syringe and so forth. A completely different way of also experiencing the rush of what you're injecting, whether it's a combination of cocaine and heroin or just or or, or just heroin. Um, you know, with multiple rushes going in and out of your veins. Yeah, well, you describe like whites almost injecting. It was almost like a perfunctory way. Yeah. It's like, I just got to get this into my system to keep from Well, being... not even into the vein, just into the muscles. So, so it even takes a few minutes for it to hit. Yeah. Right. And as if I just got to do this to keep from getting sick and da 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 da. Whereas you described the blacks who are injecting, like, you know, doing this, you know, way deep in, you know, intravenous and spending the time to find it. And then this kind of more kind of sensual, you know, public, you know, manifesting uh, enjoyment of the experience. I mean, that seems to be a whole nother kind of cultural difference between the two groups living just a few feet away from one another. Yeah, absolutely. And even the way you would do your 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 public nod, you know, this sort of the ecstatic experience of the heroine is to be, you know, nodding and looking like you're drooling on yourself. And and that's what, you know, sort of someone is seeking to do at the height of their pleasurable moment after injecting. And that can last for several hours. So people would would be seeking that what was interesting was the whites weren't admitting to it. So they wouldn't have the initial rush that you get when injecting directly a direct deposit of the drug into the vein. But they would, you know, going into the fatty tissue with the capillaries or, or into the muscle with, the, you know, the muscle then sending it on, you know, to the rest of the body. You know, it, it might take 20 minutes for the full effect to come on or 10 minutes or whatever. I don't know exactly how long, but they would then be nodding out, you know, intensely after that. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't admit to it. <laughs> right. So, so what did you make of so many of them claiming they had been Vietnam vets, whereas none of them had been Vietnam vets and only a few of them had actually been in the military? Right. You know, that was an interesting dynamic one sometimes often you know, suspects that, but then one never knows because there are Vietnam vets. The one person I do want to say, though, who was a legit vet 
and he did qualify for VA, you know, whatever, VA care. You know, he was a little bit younger, and it, I don't know if it was Grenada or what U.S. Inva- you know, invasion of Central America he was involved in, or Panama or whatever. But he was saved by the VA and successfully saved by the VA when he was finally able to prove his identity. And they had a great program that integrated him into a job at the VA, you know, and gave him a whole transition period with, you know, with support of housing. So he was the one, the one, you know, super positive outcome. So Philippe, you you and Jeff, you called the book Righteous Dope Fiend. I imagine you wouldn't have used that title if they hadn't been calling themselves Righteous Dope Fiends. Yeah. They were hope to die with my boots on dope fiends is how, how they would, you know, they would giggle saying that in some sense. You know, righteous is also, you know, a just a popular word for doing something well. You can be a righteous cook. You know, you can be righteously good at, at, at anything. And so that's what righteous dope fiend means. You are totally dedicated to focusing on your love of heroin in some sense. And it's said without shame. It's said with, you know, with with outlaw pride in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And they would consider the term junkie a slur in this setting. But, you know, different words take on different meanings for different generations at different moments in history. But you can read about, you know, the righteous dope fiend in the 1950s when it was a new, you know, when it, when it seemed like a new thing to the younger generation at that time. So let me ask you about this. I mean, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, this is a photo ethnography. So there's these very compelling black and white photos that your co-author Jeff Schomburg did. I want to ask you about this because, you know, on the one hand, you know, you say, you know, there's the uh, picture says a thousand words, but you guys turn it on on its head. I mean, there's a line where you say letting a picture speak its thousand words can result in a thousand deceptions. But, you know, I just remember encountering this repeatedly where there was a a documentary maker in Vancouver 20 odd years ago, Nettie Wild, and she did this fascinating documentary about the injecting scene in Vancouver. Vancouver. And it was when the whole debate was going on around the safe injection sites. And she was very much an advocate of trying to get these sites set up. But I think the footage she collected of people injecting was so captivating that she had a lot of it. And I just imagine that not just myself, but many others were kind of almost being put off by that. And then I remember there was a book that came out 20 years ago, a big, almost like one of these, you know, tabletop books. I think it was called Cocaine Blue or something, Mm -hmm. which also had all these photos of people at the height of the crack era. And, And I had this sense that there was a way in which the success at securing this really provocative photographage or photographic or documentary footage may have undermined their effort to really create a greater level of empathy and sympathy that we could help promote policy change. And I always felt very ambivalent about these projects, even as I admired their motivations. And I wonder when you were doing this book, how did you deal with that? Well, we were very inefficient. We took a long, 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 long time to do it and then selected our pictures carefully to both tell reality, but also to minimize how they could be, you know, hallucinated upon by a hostile reader in some sense. But at the same time, we also wanted to show the real suffering and you can't sanitize something and do justice to making recognizable the suffering and making recognizable the bad policy in a sense that the need for reform. It's really interesting also 
to see the differences in different countries when you show these pictures and and how easy and clear it is to people in less conservative, less puritanical, less righteous, so to speak, cultural countries. I, I mean, you know, my father's French and he would go, God, the U.S. is such a stupid country. Why does it you know, why does it torture its citizens? This is crazy. Why not let them have their heroin? They would be completely harmless with their heroin. And it's like so simple in that sense. And and that's what's so interesting about the, um, you know, the Swiss. I mean, the Swiss of all people, right? The Swiss are the ones that, you know, were piloting the prescription of heroin to unrepentant drug users. And all of a sudden they started having better Full, I mean, this is hard to believe, full abstention outcomes, you know, leaving drugs completely because once the person was like getting all the heroin they wanted, they they weren't excited by their outlaw life anymore. There wasn't the manic up and down pleasures that what for whatever, you know, psychodynamic reason they were pursuing. And, you know, they, they were just like hanging out with a nurse who was making sure they didn't give themselves an abscess. And they would say, well, maybe I should just like learn how to go skiing. And then they would get, you know, free skiing lessons. <laughs> Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're gonna get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Philippe, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, it was interesting because I follow the developments around the heroin maintenance clinics uh, in Europe very closely. And it's all true what you're saying. I mean, obviously, it didn't like people take the heroin home with them, but this really helped people stabilize their lives. It was specifically for people who had tried methadone and not succeeded on that. And interestingly, one of the biggest struggles they dealt with was that, you know, most of these folks were generally older in their 30s or 40s, if not, you know, they were getting a point where they were tired of living life on the streets but they were no longer not ready to abandon their lady love heroin. And so here they're getting basically as much heroin as they want each day. They can go to a clinic up to three times a day. It's either costs either nothing or just a few franc a day. But the thing they struggled with, I think, the most when they were in these programs was depression and the sense of loss of purpose in their lives. And I want to bring that back to what, you know, you were talking about in the book where, you know, at one point you talk about, you know, that, you know, at one point you or Jeff is walking along and, and you describe the brisk, eager walk makes it clear that they're dope fiends on their way to fix. And that rem- reminded me of sort of the godfather of, of drug study ethnography, Ed Preble, who wrote a book called Taking Care of Business. And in the book, he yeah, said, why did you call it Taking Care him. of Business? <laughs> and, and he said, because, you know, I mean, basically... The way I know is if I see somebody lying on a doorstep, they're more likely drunk. Whereas if I see somebody walking, head bopping back and forth, left and right, I can tell they're on the hustle. They're looking for a place to score. They're looking for a place to do that. They're taking care of business. And in fact, when you talk about the xylocene phenomenon that's coming up now and how that turns people into kind of slow motion versions of who they were before, you can see that maybe that phenomenon of taking care of business begins to get diminished. What is all making me think about is that one of the things you find is, I agree with you, obviously, 100% that, that, you know, that making, whether it's methadone or buprenorphine or especially pharmaceutical heroin or now this drug hydromorphone, which is equivalent to heroin, you know, available in the U.S., um, would make a huge difference for people who are addicted to fentanyl, this sort of stuff. But at the same time, there is this element, and you describe this at this period in the early 2000s when San Francisco begins to adopt some more progressive policies. And when the people who are homeless have the option not just of a shelter, but even of having, you know, a little room to themselves. And you describe some of the people who get out of the drug scene and then just fall into this terrible well, depression died or land up using a loan. Right. And you end up losing a lo- yeah. using a loan. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was that was sad to see and it made too much sense after it happened and you know was predictable in a sense but the whole program was new there were a bunch of cities doing it but san francisco was you know managing to do it and claim that it was doing better than everyone else even when it isn't so that was you know an interesting program a housing first program that's a classic harm reduction program don't don't judge the person get them housed before you you know do any kind of 
you know, whatever, attempt to reduce the risk taking. And, and that was really interesting to see when it worked and what some of the contradictions to it were. And it did, it did work, um, you know, for more people than it didn't work. You know, injecting heroin alone is extraordinarily dangerous. It's such an easy mm-hmm. drug to overdose on. And it's such an easy drug to revive someone on when you're next to them. You know, you, you, I mean, most of the time, um, you know, you can just shake the person and, and wake them up. But, you know, obviously no one can shake you when you knock over. So that that is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I felt connected to what you were, I mean, the scene you're describing, because, you know, back, you describe, you know, the harm reduction programs and needle exchange programs that even though they're problematic in some ways and sort of trying to put in a kind of public health model that doesn't always make sense to the real lives of people on the streets, they're nonetheless the most valuable thing yeah. going on. And that was the period where I had persuaded George Soros to become the number one private funder of needle exchange right in the on. world. And we were funding those you. programs in, 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 in the areas you were looking at. And then you described the ballot initiative, Prop 36 in 2000, which I and my colleagues drafted, put together, raised the money for, and won with, you know, overwhelmingly in 2000. And that was the first major alternative to incarceration ballot initiative to pass in the U.S. basically since the repeal of alcohol prohibition. And it doubled state funding for drug treatment at that time, right? And even though it still had elements of coercion in it, the initiative was actively opposed by the drug court judges because we took away a lot of their more coercive tools. And so you describe this moment there where, in fact, you know, that that there is this sort of beginning of more services coming in, but it can help only so much. I mean, that's the sense I got. It's like, you know, it's good that those services are out there. But for a lot of the people you were getting to know living home in in, in those encampments, you know, they weren't really going to take advantage of it for any extended period of time. Well, their whole life they had been abused, right? Every previous interaction ever in their life with any figure of authority had always been an abusive relationship, a a, a relationship of being, you know, balled out, beaten up, you know, put in jail, rebuked, you know, for being a good for nothing and so forth. So, you know, when all of a sudden these sort of new piloted, you know, wonderful harm reduction services were being offered, they couldn't really believe it, right? They didn't even know how to absorb it or trust it. And the whites were the first people that the system recognized as, quote, deserving it, you know, and reached out to them. And they literally were the first ones to get housed. And, and you know, it was like totally racialized in that sense. Although you described the whites being pissed off because they felt that the blacks were getting favoritism. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Which wasn't really true. Well, that's what everyone, I mean, that's the American story, right? That's the American dream. Yes. A- everyone pissed off at everyone else. Yeah. I think the most hard heartbreaking moment in the book, Philippe, was, you you know, you're pointing out how almost none of the white folks have any relationship with their children anymore, whereas that with the black folks, they're more likely to have some relationship there and more likely an extended family that's caring about them and will invite them back in. But there's this moment where you or Jeff um, go and one of, one of the black characters in the book, you know, his son shows up. And he's so happy to see his dad, wants to meet the family. They arrange to meet in a few hours. And 
the hours go by and, you know, I can't remember which character it was, but he's so happy, so happy, so happy. And, you know, they're going to take the bus and then just, you know, lands up taking the bus fare to buy some crack. And somehow the time goes by and they show up very late and the kid's not there. And I just... I mean, I guess it was something because part of what you're writing about in this thing is that there's something, you know, whether it's the drug itself or the or the or the community they're living in that somehow breaks something off in times that just um, I don't know, I, I guess I just found it heartbreaking, that piece of it. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. Jeff actually went to the fi- his funeral and the family asked him to be the official photographer at the funeral and and they also asked for copies of of his photograph and and his son and daughters um carter was was the name we gave him they had grown up without their father and so the the photographs were are now their memory and they compare what they look like compared to their father how their beard compares to how their father's beard looks you know in the casket so it was a very moving dynamic um and and it was sad it, it's heartbreaking i mean their lives were heartbreaking every single one uh, you know except for one person had died uh, or two people had died by the time the book was published not even 10 years after by the time the book was published their mortality rate is so high so you know so outlaws suffer <laughs> you know they get punished <laughs> they get killed by their bodies you know, I was curious, by the way, I mean, here you and Jeff are spending so much time, you're sharing meals. Jeff is sometimes even, I think, sleeping over there. You know, you're getting yeah. all the families. Did you ever share drugs with them? Did they ever press you to? Did you ever offer? I mean, whether it was just weed or whether it was cocaine or heroin. I mean, how did you handle that? You know, no, the, I mean, I slept out there, you know, a few times, but like I say, for every, you know, whatever, half a dozen times I slept out there, Jeff probably slept out there you know, five or six or seven or 10 more times. I remember there was really cute. Tina went back out hustling so she could hustle up for Jeff's fix, which she had identified as coffee. <laughs> and so, and it was called the wake up, you know, you know, his, his wake up, his wake up fix. He's going to need 75 cents for his wake up fix. And they realized they were penniless. So she went back out and panhandled it for Jeff because he had spent all his money, you know, buying, buying food for them that day. So they would accept us for the nerds that we were. I did drink beer. Um, I, I, I tried once or twice to drink, um, fortified wine. I literally threw up the first time I did and, and have never touched it since then. That stuff is, I mean, it tastes like cough syrup. Cisco <laughs> berries, the nastiest thing. I mean, it, it's, it's mostly sugar and, and syrup, I guess. Um, and a bunch of alcohol. But each bottle is the equivalent of five shots of vodka. Is that what I read? Yeah. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Marijuana never shows up in the book, more or less. I barely, I think it's barely ever mentioned. No, yeah, and the marijuana was completely irrelevant to them, yeah. And how do you explain that? Especially when you read now that the ways in which cannabis can enhance the feeling of an opioid. Um, and so often cannabis goes well with many drugs. Why in your that world right there is basically marijuana essentially absent? Well, you know, it, it wasn't available in the same way that it's available now in a titrated amount that you can buy in a store in California where you know, you know, even what mixture of whatever those things are. Cannabinoids. Yeah, but Philippe, so what? 
but I mean, marijuana was still omnipresent throughout this period, yeah. and, and they were already accessing heroin, cocaine, and everything else. Why do you think marijuana wasn't part of that scene at all? I mean, it just it just seems odd to me. Now that you say it like that, it seems odd to me. I didn't. It didn't even occur to me why they would possibly it seemed obvious to me that they wouldn't want it in that sense whenever they had an extra penny they would invest it you know despite what the whites said they often would too uh, they would invest it in crack so that yeah. was where their discretionary income is and when you compare the psychoactive effects to crack and, and marijuana it's not yeah. like the marijuana becomes even vaguely noticeable in the face of crack so last question about this book here you wrote this a number of years ago and you know you say in the book that you know the language that people use i mean the folks you were studying you know it was it was racist it was crass it was misogynistic i mean you know filthy you know, terrible language. But in the book, right, so you say you temper it somewhat. But like when people are consistently using white people using the N word, you yeah. spell it out in the book. Yeah, I wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> no, you don't do that anymore. And I'm just curious, do you think that the fact that that the book does spell it out all the time, is that make it less likely that the book might ever be assigned in university courses now? No, or that you, you know, I that? think it could even suggest it to the uh, to the publisher that in the next printing they do it with a dash and so forth the way mm -hmm. the, the way that the, the convention has changed now the thing is i wanted to use real language i didn't want to tell a lie i wanted in your face racism to be visible i didn't want to soft pedal the racism of whites against blacks and the few latinx characters against blacks as well that's what we felt at the time is we wanted to rub it in the face of america to face the fact that they might have politically correct language in their you know upper class homes or or workplaces but that's not the way that you know that 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 people on the street speak and and they aren't ashamed of how they speak do you think anything's lost? I mean, obviously, everybody knows what the N dash, you know, what it means if you don't spell it out now. Well, it isn't. It's an awfully ugly word. I think it's too painful when I see it in my I can see it in my students. It just mm -hmm. distracts them. I don't want to waste time distracting them. I want them Got to it. see the important thing. And I don't want to have side debates that don't have stakes because we, we have so many problems that we can deal with and that, you know, there are ways to reform in the United States. And so, you know, if we get too sidetracked, it, it just isn't worth it. So listen, you're in L.A. now for a number of years. So are you on the streets again? Are you doing something I've like this? I've been in jail, is... actually, mostly. In jail. Uh, okay. So I mean, that's where you're supposed you're to go, right? That's where all the public resources go. Why shouldn't the right, ethnographer right. go there? And, and what exactly are you doing in jail these days in Los Angeles? It's, it's pretty intense. It's the mental health wards of the L.A. County Jail. It's the great tragedy of the United States where we close down our hospitals and then the people that do need help are now, instead of getting help, they're being punished in jail. So we, we did stumble on a super interesting peer support program that even seems to be operating in the heart of the beast in a very positive way. And we found, you know, a progressive sheriff who's open to expanding that program. So we're just working very much with bare knuckles to, expand a tiny space, you know, of humanity and help 
in in a setting that is you know obviously where no one with psychosis should ever set foot on any given day there's between three and five thousand people um you know many of them you know thinking that you're you know a devil or the or a snake who's trying to eat them or a vampire trying to bite them don't have any understanding of why they're being punished and are most of them people who have histories of, of drug problems as well? So it's both. The drug of choice on the streets of L.A. is methamphetamine. And methamphetamine mm -hmm. is the thing that, you know, most fast throws you into psychosis when you have that tendency and when you use a lot of it over and over, especially. And, you know, it can also trigger in someone long-term psychosis. So smoked, um, you know, it's, it's that extraordinarily pure crystal meth that comes up from Tijuana and it keeps you up for two, three days. So it's really, really strong and it doesn't take a lot of organization to get it. You know, injecting heroin every single day or, or, or going into heroin withdrawal takes a lot of organization. It takes a lot of hard work. That isn't something something someone with psychosis can do usually on a regular basis enough to even develop a habit in that sense. And they is would, it you're saying it's overwhelmingly smoking now, so very little injecting so far? Yeah, there there are some scenes of injection and especially in Tijuana where, you know, that is the epicenter, uh, you know, among the deported gang members who are both selling it and 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 using it and are trapped at the border wall. But you know, it's just more rational to smoke it. It 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 has the same strong effect and is much easier and you don't have to poke yourself 20 times and and you don't have to miss and it burns like hell when you miss and so forth so it's just rational to smoke it in that sense I it's see. sort of the same way crack is rational with respect to cocaine in that same way um you know smoking it is so much easier than, yeah. than injecting it and 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 with cocaine it doesn't even reach your brain it won't even reach your the the pleasure effects don't even reach your brain if you don't get in a direct deposit so it can, you you can waste your money completely and is there something different about the meth today as opposed to the meth 10 years ago you know i just get this from the secondary you know the reports cartels are you know are you know specifically sought out experts to make the best quality they could get that smokes the easiest you know they want to open up their market with a product that outcompetes everything else you know it's more consistently good than it ever was probably is what i would say in that sense yeah but I mean, not qualitatively different there's the meth of 10 years ago compared to the meth of today it, you would not compare it to heroin um to fentanyl it's not that big a difference between what was there before and what, what is there now yeah i agree with you yeah yeah no well listen philippe i mean this is fantastic continuing this conversation with you and i so much admire the work you're doing so let me just say thanks for doing this with me thanks for having this conversation best of luck with the work in los angeles as well as in tijuana and i really look forward to uh you know your next writings and your next book about all of this so thanks so much great thank you and i look forward to listening to your podcast If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. 
Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, we'll be doing something totally different. Heading out of my apartment up to East Harlem to do an episode from the country's first overdose prevention center, also known as a safe injection site. It's a shame that it's still controversial to open these sites in America. I mean, in some ways, in terms of harm reduction and what we could be doing, overdose prevention sites or safe consumption rooms are old news, right? Because they've been up and running you know, all over the world, as you mentioned earlier. But as an organization with our Washington Heights site and our East Harlem site, we've been tiptoeing up to this and preparing for this in a variety of ways for years. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.